Welcome to Resilience Found, a podcast of stories shared in hopes to inspire, encourage, and most importantly, let others know they are not alone. Everyone has a story to tell. Do you want to tell yours? Today, I am talking with Heather in Seattle. So Heather, take us to when you started learning resiliency. I know in our previous conversation, you mentioned you started learning that at a very young age. Yeah, I'm really passionate about the topic of resiliency because I think it's fascinating how um, how some people have built up a lot of resiliency and it's a core part of their everyday journey and how they get through very difficult life circumstances and how some people have learned resiliency at a very young age. And so it's, it's a core part of who they are. And some people you know, may be just learning resiliency, you know, in their 30s or 40s. And um, when they go through hard, difficult times, that that is um, a big capacity builder for them because they've never had to deal with it. So I'm very intrigued and fascinated by the idea of of resiliency. Um, I do feel like I am a a person that has built my resiliency and capacity for difficult things. from a very young age. And um, it's only until recently, actually, that I have so much gratitude for that. Um, I had a moment um, last February where I had that kind of awakening of gratitude for my resiliency building from such a young age when I went to um, an Oprah conference right before COVID hit. And Oprah talked about um, a moment in time when she herself as a child um, was alienated from her birth mother. She was reunited with her birth mother. Her birth mother made her sleep out on the front porch on a wood, um, on a wooden pallet, and uh, Oprah had a lot of resentment for that for a long time. And it wasn't until she was an adult that she realized that it was that um, moment in in her life that was life changing and um, powerful and made her who she was. And it was that moment of aha for me that um, took me back to when I was seven years old. Um, my dad. Um, you know, had trouble keeping jobs. And um, so there were many circumstances as a young child where my mother was, you know, struggling as a mother of four children to kind of keep food on the table. And um, at seven years old, I will never forget, I came downstairs, it was my birthday. My mother had made me cupcakes the night before that I was gonna take to class. And this was a big deal for me. I came downstairs and we lived in, you know, an older, small, townhouse and, um, you know, it just, um, wasn't in the best condition and there were ants all over all of my cupcakes. And I just remember being shocked and just stunned and like, oh my gosh, panic. Cause I wasn't going to be able to bring those yeah. cupcakes to school. And I just begged my mother to go to the store and buy some cupcakes to replace the ones she had made so that I can go in and celebrate my birthday. And my mother turned to me and said, Heather, I have seven cents in my checking account there won't be any cupcakes today. And that was um, the first um, defining moment for me in my life of building resiliency. And um, I attribute so much of my life and my ability to persevere, have grit, have incredible tenacity to that being the first and being one of very many moments in my life uh, where I've had to build resiliency and just go in with my head up to my first grade class with no cupcakes in hand and, you know, feel very devastated and embarrassed and humiliated and 
just really just, it was an impactful moment. Um, and so I've had many of those moments in my life and I attribute it um, to that ability to build capacity, to be resilient, um, to persevere. Um, and more recently in my life, I've had for the last three years, um, some setbacks and some unfortunate events for my own life goals. Um, and I'm just feel really grateful that I have the ability to um, be forward thinking and forward looking and have a lot of optimism for positive outcomes um, because I am the type of individual that who has had a lot of setbacks. I haven't had it easy in my life, but mm-hmm. I am a very hard worker and I'm somebody who just believes in putting out into the universe, you know, my goals, my dreams. Um, I have a tremendous, I was born with tremendous optimism um, and um, and I've been able to achieve a lot of those goals. And so I'm somebody that just really is a big believer in continuing to push forward. And one of my more recent goals in my life has been to have a second child. And uh, I had my first child. I'm 39 now. I had my first child at 32 with no problem. You know, uh, got pregnant on the first try, had a really smooth, easy pregnancy, um, had a bit of a traumatic birth experience, but overall a healthy child, um, and just a, a overall very successful pregnancy. So fast forward, mm-hmm. um, to three years ago, January, 2018, um, we decided to try again for a second child. And, um, that's when I had my first miscarriage. So January, 2018, I miscarried, uh, twins and, um, Ugh. it was less than 10 weeks. Um, And I, you know, that was my first miscarriage experience and it was sad. It was surprising to me. Um, and I think a little bit shocking. I took a week off from work. Um, but I feel fortunate that I didn't fall into like a depression or I didn't fall into, um, a severe sadness. You know, to me, my go-to on that was try, try again, because that's, just always been kind of a mantra that I um, have had. And, and yeah. Did you feel like there's just something in your heart saying, as painful as this is, I just have to keep to keep going? Was it just an inherent drive? Absolutely. Uh, and that is my personality to a T. Like there is, I am the type of person that, you know, if I want something, I will go to very great lengths to achieve it, to get it, to have it. I will look at all options. It is, um, it is definitely a personality trait that I have, but I think there's a lot that goes into that. It's not just a personality trait that you're born with. It also, you know, is, um, something that can be grown and developed through resiliency and, and have in building out that resiliency through, for me, it's been a lot of other moments in my life. Okay. And so after that happened and you said, all right, I'm just going to keep, I'm going to try again. What did that look like? Uh, I began trying again um, as soon as I could. So for all of my miscarriages that you'll hear about today, I've always had to have DNC procedures after them. Um, yeah, there's always residual, um, circum you know there's residual i don't actually know all the medical terminology for it but it's just it 
and I'll, I always have to have a DNC procedure because I, my body will not, um, release it naturally. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I had to go through that and then I always have to heal after that. It usually takes about two months, you know, before I can start to try again. Um, so started trying and I wasn't actually able to get pregnant, um, until November, 2018. Um, so again, it's, it's amazing how much time sometimes this takes, but, um, you know, for me, my next pregnancy was in November, um, of that year. And I got Mm -hmm. pregnant with a girl, um, who again, um, I miscarried and, um, all of my miscarriages have happened before 14 weeks, Mm -hmm. but I was able to know the sex of this one. And I was able to also find out that this miscarriage was due to chromosomal issues. So that just, that started a new path in my journey to, of exploration and learning and trying to learn a little bit more about how miscarriages happen, um, about, you know, my body, the biology behind it, um, chromosomal issues, um, and, and that started me then on my journey for more genetic testing, um, and understanding a little bit more about myself. Um, and through that process, I, I came up with, um, that I am a carrier for, um, only one genetic defect. And that is, um, a carrier for a gene that causes deafness. Um, so unrelated to the miscarriages, although another piece of information that I didn't have before. And, um, And so it just gave me, again, more encouragement to keep going forward. And my uh, obstetrician gynecologist at the time kind of said, hey, this is this happens a lot. I mean, when you start to learn about the statistics of miscarriage, it's quite fascinating um, how high and how common it is. And yet I still feel like people aren't talking about it enough. So I am an advocate Mm -hmm. of talking about it and being very open with my story because I want others to know they're not alone. And at the time, my... OB said, you know, try one more time. And it's only until after the third miscarriage that we're really going to start to send you out for fertil- to a fertility expert. Now, in retrospect, I wish that I would have maybe advocated a little bit more, done a little bit more research at that juncture um, to maybe get with a fertility specialist sooner and earlier. But I had a great relationship with my OB and, and still continue to do. Um, and it's just, you know, one of those things. So we tried again. And so that Second miscarriage that I just described was in November. I was able to get pregnant again in February, the following February, 2019, um, and had another miscarriage a little bit earlier in term. So I wasn't able to find out um, exactly what it was caused by. Um, Again, another DNC procedure, another wait and try again, Uh, got pregnant again, April, 2019, found out, um, miscarried again, and found out that that one was a boy. And it was, mm-hmm. it was healthy. It was a chromosomal healthy one. So this one was my first sign that, aha, I am able to carry, um, or I am able to get pregnant with a healthy egg. Um, but yet still something is wrong. So wow. that then continued my, again, my investigation and kind of continued research. And I laugh and joke a little bit because I do and have felt like I'm just this ongoing science experiment <laughs> um, because it's just, it's been a lot of research. It's been a lot of trial and error and um, a lot of learning 
uh, along the way. And so then at that point, you know, I got with a fertility specialist and we started to do a little bit more investigation because it, now it starts to become confusing because, you know, the first miscarriage with the twins, we thought that it may have been a sack issue where the two of them may have been conjoined in one sack or had um, some kind of a sack issue. We learned the second one was a chromosomal issue. The third one we didn't know. And now the fourth one we knew was normal and healthy. So then it starts to become confusing. So at that at that point, then we started to investigate a little bit further um, what else could have been causing it. Um, I along the way I learned um, that I am not able to process folate like most people. So you know we're all for people like me that are trying to get pregnant. We're on. Um, uh, you know, prenatal vitamins, a lot of which have folate mm -hmm. in them. I learned through this process and through some of my genetic testing that I cannot process folate. So now I had to take a separate new uh, supplement called L-methylfolate to make sure that I'm processing it correctly. So we thought that might be helpful. And then once we got in and started investigating and doing a lot of uh, pictures, really, ultrasounds of my uterus, uh, we learned that I had a uterine septum which is basically um, a lot of tissue that has kind of piled up in the middle of um, my uterus. Uteruses are supposed to be oval shaped. Mine looked like a heart. And, um, and so we decided to do a uterine septum surgery in August 2019 to cut away um, that septum and try to make my uterus more oval shaped. So I underwent um, surgery August 2019 for that. And at that time, they said we could try again. And I really struggled after that to get pregnant. And um, it took uh, until May 2020 um, to get pregnant again. So I was able to get pregnant May 2020, um, started to have some unusual cramping, which I I was used to some cramping um, because of all of the miscarriages and knew what that kind of felt like. But this one mm -hmm. was more strong. Um, and more intensified than what I would normally experience during a miscarriage. Um, I waited a couple days and uh, went went in to see my doctor. She went in, she did an ultrasound. Everything seemed to still look fine. Went home, two more days, uh, started to have that severe cramping again. Um, went into my fertility doctor's office again. They took a look and my entire uterus was filled with blood. I was having an ectopic uh, pregnancy that be became very, very dangerous, uh, very rapidly. And um, in fact, my doctor was so concerned that she personally drove me to the emergency room from her office um, and got me in for emergency ectopic um, surgery then in May wow. 2020. Yep. And at that time, they did remove one of my fallopian tubes because it had exploded um, inside my body. So ectopic pregnancies, what I've learned, are very dangerous because of the internal bleeding that's taking place. Mm -hmm. um, so really um, kind of a surprising and scary moment um, then in May 2020. And at that point, you know, I think you kind of have to stop, stop and take a hard look at, you know, all of these, you know, many of which those surgeries um, – I was going under anesthesia for, um, I was having just a lot of operational procedures and then just also thinking about the effect on my partner as well. Um, I felt like I was enduring all of those losses in a very strong way. I wasn't taking a lot of time off work after each one of those happened. If anything, I would take maybe a day off, uh, in some cases, even a half a day off. Um, because to me, wow. it's just, yeah, I, I, I no longer was letting it affect me. And it was um, becoming a very pragmatic exercise.
at that point for me. I was able to okay. very, very much compartmentalize those losses and uh, think about it more in terms of the science um, rather than the m- emotional aspect. But what I realized that, that during that time, May 2020, the ectopic pregnancy is that it was actually affecting my partner in different ways. Um, he was struggling with the losses. He was struggling with the frustration. He was struggling a lot more with um, seeing me undergo the pain and the physical more of the physical, um, endurance that was happening than anything. Um, because emotionally I felt very strong and stable during all of this. Um, so at that time after the ectopic though, I was still in a mode and still very much of the mind, like keep going, like what's next, what's next, what are Mm -hmm. my next options? What other options do I have? And at that time, um, my fertility doctor really felt like, um, it was time to go the IVF route. And so October, 2020 is when I did my egg retrieval surgery, um, to identify, um, you know, the quality of my eggs, because I think at that time, at that point, you start to really wonder, um, about the quality and they were able to extract 22 eggs, um, 14 of which they were able to take through the IVF process to begin, uh, the growing cycle, um, uh, of the 14, seven were able to make it past day, I think it was day three. Um, and they actually ended up um, only being able to freeze one of the eggs out of um, being able to extract 22 of them. Oh my goodness. So um, one egg um, that was able to continue growing um, after a week's period, uh, one egg that was healthy in terms of its genetic makeup. Um, And so then in October, we decided to freeze that egg um, and undergo then um, another procedure to double check to make sure my uterus was still uh, oval shape from that August 2019 surgery and make sure that it was in a really healthy place, my uterus, before implantation. And so in December 2020, um, just two months ago, I went and had that procedure done and they identified that the septum had grown grown back um, and that I would have to undergo another uterine septum surgery. And that's what I did in December. Now, did you ever stop and say, why are these things happening? That like- is a great question. <laughs> um, I cannot tell you how many people, including my dearest best friends, have said, Heather, there is so much, there are so many signs here. Like, don't you feel like the universe or God or something somewhere, someone is telling you, do not proceed? Yeah. And-, and I feel like I would say that too to myself. And for some reason, I just am not taking no for an answer. And even, you know, like when you mentioned that you took a very pragmatic approach, um, I found that interesting. And, you know, did you sort of feel like, you know, maybe I know for me, when I was dealing with some hard things, work was a welcome distraction. I was like, 100%. I I mean, I I will say that about myself is, um, 
I don't really like the term workaholic because I think it has a negative connotation. And I do feel like, you know, in other parts of my life, in my friendships, in my parenting and being a mother, like I'm extremely active, extremely present, but I love working. Um, mm-hmm. I, ch- I choose to work. I choose to show up every day. I find work to be very, very fulfilling for me. And I, I love it. And yes, um, I love work in many ways because it is a distraction and it is something that I, that nurtures me in other ways. And so, yes, I mean, I don't mind getting right back to work after surgery. I like it. It gets my mind off things. It makes me feel good. It's fulfilling for me. Um, so there's that. And there's also, you know, the care and concern that my loved ones have had to say, you know, I'm not sure that it's a good idea for you to continue down this path. It is out of care and concern. And yet there's something in me that keeps saying, keep going. And so you decided to have the second surgery Mm -hmm. to remove the septum. Yes. And then at that time, um, we had plans to, in the new year, um, 2021, to... then take another look at my uterus, make sure that it was uh, white and fluffy and round or oval shaped. And and then we would do implantation from that egg that we had um, frozen. And so that was the plan of record is probably to do implantation in January. And then the second week of January, which was just a few weeks ago, um, I woke up in, well, I didn't actually go to sleep. I uh, finished some work that I was working on at 1130 at night on a Tuesday and uh, tried to go to sleep. And I had horrible chest pains and um, wasn't able to get to sleep. And it suddenly was 3 a.m. And I said, I think I need to go to another emergency room. I'm having these terrible chest pains. And lo and behold, I had to have emergency gallbladder surgery. Um, which was a shocking episode in and of itself for me because I consider myself to be a very healthy individual. Um, and it was interesting. I was laying there. Um, the doctor, the first doctor that I saw in the emergency room, she shared with me her story that she had had IVF to have her four children. Mm-hmm. Um, and she and I really connected and she said, Heather, I really think some of these, uh, issues with your I had, a, I had two gallstones. She said, I really believe just based on your profile, your history, your health history, that this is not caused by um, fats and other conditions that usually are related to gallstones. I believe that this is actually caused by all of the um, fertility hor- hormones and hormonal treatments that you've been on for the last many, many months. And that was stunning to me. Now, I had a different uh, doctor that came in who felt differently and who gave me a different opinion, but I felt that the first doctor's opinion really resonated with me. And um, so I did have different opinions as to what was causing it, but um, that first doctor who I really had a connection with and who shared with me her her understanding, her research on this topic, because she herself has gone through much of what I've gone through, um, resonated as... Um, for me, and I, I believe it to be true, uh, a reason why I developed gallstones and why I ultimately had to have this emergency surgery. 
Um, so I'm in recovery right now as we're talking. I still am bandaged up from my gallbladder surgery. I still um, am healing. In fact, I have a follow-up appointment later today, and I'm not going to be able to look at having an embryo transfer for probably another month or two until my internal stitches are healed um, and um, some of the other internal things that are going on with me are, are healed up. So my next steps will be to... Um, get well after this gallbladder surgery, uh, maybe in about a month, go and check on my uterus to see if that septum is uh, staying at bay. And then hopefully uh, do the embryo transfer sometime in March or April. I, I mean, this has been such a journey for you. Um, and I, I am so sorry to hear you know, you tell about these losses and I can't, and I'm sure those listening too, um, and maybe some can identify with you on just that pain. And yet you have this remarkable drive to just keep going. Yeah. And, and, and now I'm questioning it, to be honest with you. I think for me, um, the perseverance has always been, you know, I have all these setbacks, but people are telling me that, it, it could still happen for me. There's still that hope. There's still that optimism. When you read the research and the studies about miscarriage and um, IVF, you know, there is still a chance, right? It, but I have to keep going and I have to keep trying. And so that's driving me. Also, what's driving me is my my child's desire to have a sibling. And I grew up with siblings and my husband grew up with siblings. And there is still that desire. When somebody describes my child as an only child, I kind of have a uh, an adverse reaction because that's not what I intended. However, um, this health issue with the gallbladder has really put a different frame of mind in for me of one of valuing health, valuing the health that I have, um, valuing being healthy and being a parent to my child that I have today. Um, and so I have a new lens on it. Um, and I, I think where I'm at, um, is, you know, I will try one more time with the embryo that you know, I, I kind of, I say it lightheartedly because again, I'm thinking about this much more pragmatically these days because of what I've been through. But I always say, you know, my embryo that's on ice, um, you know, I will, you know, the, the embryo that's in the freezer somewhere, I, I want to, uh, you know, give that one a go. Um, but I'm not sure I will try again. Um, prior to the gallbladder surgery, I had always said, I'll try IVF two, three more times, like whatever I need to do. And I, I don't think that's the case anymore. So, yeah. And, and you, you have that ability to recognize that, um, you know, we all know our limits, right? Yeah, I think it is recognizing your limits, but I think it's also recognizing risk. And in my case, I need to be more taking that into more of an account rather than always, you know, trying to cross that finish line and get what I want and, you know, to what cost and at what cost. And, um, Thus far, you know, emotionally, I've been able to handle these miscarriages really well. But I think what I'm also preparing myself for is the end state of, you know, potentially losing an, in another miscarriage the embryo that I may implant and preparing myself for the uh, fact of, hey, there may not be a next time and you may not be trying again. And this is the end. You are mm -hmm. a, you are a mother to one. And uh, that I think will actually be in and of itself harder mm -hmm. than all of the miscarriages that I've gone through because it will have to be that closure 
that maybe I haven't emotionally prepared myself yet for. Right. I'm sure it's a a grieving process. And I think isn't acceptance is one of the steps in grieving. And um, yeah, I mean, and were there any, you know, throughout your journey, are, are there are there resources that you found that you turned to, um, you know, like whether it was a group or are there things like that you could share for listeners? Absolutely. And I believe in the power of community. And I, I don't know anyone personally that's had recurrent miscarriage to the extent that I have. So yes, I have found hope and solace in a Facebook community for recurrent miscarriage. There are about 2,500 members there. And that has been an amazing support group and never thought that virtually I would find so much comfort in a virtual community. And mm-hmm. through that group, I have found tremendous comfort. And in addition, just through other social media engines, whether it be, um, you know, a, it's called Braving Infertility Group. There is a an in-person community that was started in Texas for recurrent uh, infertility. And I, I have thought about maybe throwing myself into, you know, opening up a chapter um, where I live in the Seattle area or doing something like that. Um, so yes, I think it's the cause um, and the mission of serving others um, through their own losses that where I've, I've found comfort. And what I mean, I know this is probably a big question, but what you know for for folks listening that might be going through similar things, what advice would you give, or is there a piece of advice that you wish that someone would have told you, or or advice that you did find useful um, that you you could share? I think it is listening to your own heart and your own instincts and knowing your own self or your own body, um, I think is really important. Um, and to stay, to stay true to knowing that and also knowing and giving yourself the grace to make different decisions and to change your mind and to say, you know, I've decided to do something differently. Um, I think all of that is really um, important to give yourself grace and also just staying true authentically to that voice. And then secondly, um, it is about finding community. For me, speaking openly, speaking transparently, being open about it has been healing for me. Um, And finding other people and hearing from other people who are going through it. I find now, because I have been so open, people who are not as open confide in me um, when they're going through the similar circumstances, even when they've not shared it with anybody else. And that um, has been great. And so I I would just say in terms of advice um, to, to find where you're comfortable. If it is speaking out, if it's not speaking out, but finding a community or a safe space or uh, even just a com- being able to confide in, in a dear friend, those I think are important tools. I think that's, I mean, even just you doing this podcast, which I'm very grateful for, um, it, you're definitely helping people that are listening. And Unfortunately, these are subjects that aren't talked about a lot, um, but I do think it's becoming more uh, prevalent now that people are realizing that they can speak about it and find resources and solace and, like you said, in community and others and to be able to get through things like this. And I'm just so grateful that you were willing to share this journey. I know probably wasn't easy. And I'm just very appreciative.